Well, I do want to thank you all for that, and um, and really, it's it's been a, a joy. Uh, it, it hasn't been like this kind of endurance thing uh, for 25 years. It's been a, a joy, not a complete joy. There there have been ups and downs, <laughs> uh, but looking. Looking back over the years uh, from this standpoint right now, uh, when there have been downs, I have probably been the major in contributor to it being a down, and uh, you can see that now. And so, yeah, it's been wonderful, and it's, it's been especially made wonderful because of the people that I work with on our staff who just bring wisdom that I don't have, skills that I don't have, uh, energy oftentimes that I don't have. Um, same thing with our elders and our governing board. Uh, it's, it's just, I, I can't say how much of a support and, um, and help and really joy it's been to work with them. And then our congregation. I mean, this is, this is not just a congregation that I'm the pastor of. It's, the, it's a congregation that is my church family. And so my kids, as you can see the picture out there, they're pretty young when they when we came here 25 years ago and they went through you know their upper elementary uh, ministry here middle school ministry high school ministry uh, and and in so many other ways that you guys have ministered to us as a family and to them some of you have been their small group leaders and uh, been in our small group and encouraged us it's just been it's it's just been and and uh will continue to be a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. So thank you so much uh, for all of that. All right, so let's talk about next week uh, here because we start a brand new series next week. And so we, we go back to uh, Paul's letter to the Roman Christians, and we're going to look at the last major section of that. So Romans 12 through 16. We have done three series on Romans, interrupted by other series, we go back. Uh, we're going to do something next week that uh, we're just going to look at two verses, though, because they're such important verses, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And we're going to, I've been geeking out on preparing for it already, and I got a feeling that it's going to feel like a, a little bit like a classroom, and we do that every once in a while, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Sermon classroom, we'll call it. Uh, but... Uh, it's, it's going to be a great series. The series is going to be called The Fellowship of the Gospel. So Romans is, I mean, the major subject in Romans is, of course, the gospel. And when he gets to the last chapters, he starts applying the gospel he's been talking about for the first 11 chapters to life together. And uh, it's, it's all about how do we apply the gospel in our lives, and it's always throughout 12 through 16 about how we apply it as we live life together as God's family. And so uh, I, I, I'm very, very, very excited about it. L way more excited than Romans 9 through 11, which was, uh, uh, how am I going to preach this? So um, at Five Oaks, we believe that understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. And uh, if you don't uh, have a Bible with you, we do have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you for those of you who are here. And uh, it's on page 976, 976 in those Bibles. So today we are in our last week of our series on Christian sexuality, which has been a series about Jesus, sex, and gender. And we've covered 
eight of the 12 topics. By the end of today, we'll have covered eight of the 12 topics that our students are also uh, covering in using the curriculum uh, in, uh, on Wednesday nights in middle school, high school ministry. And uh, for those of you who are parents and many others, uh, hopefully you've been able to access this curriculum and spend time in the curriculum. And this has hopefully led to some good conversations as a family, uh, sometimes in our small groups, that sort of thing. So I really, and, and you still have access to it. You'll continue to have access to it. If you haven't gotten access and you would like access to it, uh, it explains it in the sermon application guide, which you can download uh, from home on our website. But at the end of the outline part of the sermon application guide, it tells you how you can get access to that. And students and parents, today we're, we're going to end the series here, but we're continuing on for another four weeks. So the subject, the, generally speaking, the subject that we're covering today here is going to be covered in the last week, differently, but in the last week of the series that you're doing on Wednesday nights, and there's still another three subjects that you're going to be covering over the next a uh, few we uh, weeks on Wednesday night. So let's pray, and let's pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word, as we always do. And this prayer is based on John chapter 12, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word given for us by Your Holy Spirit. We ask that You would illuminate Your truth, open our eyes, and soften our hearts to whatever it is that You have for us, and set our feet to follow after You for Your glory for your honor and your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking today specifically about how to live with sexual integrity, how to live with sexual integrity. So we've covered for seven weeks all kinds of subjects, and this is kind of circling around to where we started with all of this, with making it a little bit more personal in the sense of, okay, how do we live with sexual integrity? And when we talk about integrity, specifically the word integrity, it, it, integrity uh, connotes wholeness, uh, connectedness, uh, integration of our lives. And so you might say this, uh, sexual integrity is about forging a strong connection between how I think and act sexually and who I am, my identity, who I am. All right, so that is not a controversial definition of sexual integrity. This is Probably what most people that you work with in your neighborhood, in the media, education, would say that sexual integrity is a connection between how I think and act sexually and who I am. Where the tensions come and the debates and the divisions within families, within societies, and sometimes even within ourselves comes from different, differing ways and differing understandings of how we discover or uh, determine who we are. And so, the, 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 in traditional cultures, for example, uh, and you have traditional cultures and families within the larger society, even in, in the West, in the modern West, but in traditional cultures, it's the tradition that tells you who you are, or it's the family that tells you who you are, or it's maybe your role in life that tells you who you are in a traditional culture. In modern Western culture, what tells you who you are is theoretically uh, the self. You discover within yourself who you are. But in Christianity, 
we discover, we don't determine, we discover who we are uh, by looking to God to see what God says about who we are and looking at the scriptures. And since we don't, uh, in society, in general, since we don't all agree where we learn who we are, we have tensions. Uh, even within families where there is not agreement that God is the one that we look to. Um, so, or, or imagine in a traditional family, in a traditional culture, where the kids are still living in, the parents are still living in a traditional culture mindset. Maybe they're immigrants and they've come here and the kids are in a modern Western mindset of, I determine who I am. But wherever you get your identity, I think that most of us find that it's, it's not easy to integrate who we are or who we think we are and how we live our lives and how we express our sexuality. Now, that's true in all areas. You know, we, we have this idea of who we are and then we have this mismatch oftentimes by the way that we live, by the way that we act, by the way that we think. So I think most of us, whether we're followers of Jesus or we're not followers of Jesus, we, we yearn to live an integrated life, a, a whole life. And the reason is because there's an inner tension that we experience when how we live our lives and who we believe ourselves to really be don't match in significant ways. There's, there's a tension inside of us, and it comes out in all kinds of ways. It can come out in anxiety, depression, anger, guilt, shame, deep disappointment in ourselves. So, we could spend this last week in this series talking about what the Bible says about our identity. And then we could talk about how that matches to various subjects within the sexual arena. Um, we could talk about pornography and masturbation and dating and the use of media and social media. We could do that. And I wish we had time to cover all of those. Uh, our students will be covering all of those in the coming weeks. But in reality, um, questions of identity, we could kind of just look at the question of identity. Is something just in the regular rhythms of our church life, we talk about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. So I want to take a step back today. And I, uh, I want to take what might be an earlier step to discovering what our identity is. Okay, as Christians, we look to God and we look to Scripture, but there's really an earlier step that I think is really important. And so I want you to change a couple of words in your definitions, and you'll, I think, get the idea of what I'm talking about here. So sexual integrity is about forging a strong connection between how I think and act sexually, and instead of who, marked through, whose I am. This is this earlier step that I want to focus on. So we need to have that connection. Then a debate and tension that comes in families is in differing understandings of how we discover or determine whose we are. Now, the culture in general is not necessarily going to agree to that. But from a Christian standpoint, we believe, that, you know, if we say God determines our identity, um, I think we need to take a step back and ask should we trust God and what he says? That's what I'm basically getting at today. And uh, because when we don't live into that, usually it's a betrayal 
of something inside of us that says, I'm not sure I trust God. I think I trust myself more than I trust God. So the Bible plainly says that we belong to Jesus. That's whose we are. We belong to Jesus. If we're Christians, we believe Jesus when he says we belong to him. And in the passage we're looking at today, we're going to see Jesus saying, yep, everything belongs to me, and that includes you. And, and he determines then, because we belong to him, he determines who we are. And so my goal today is to help you see that you can trust what Jesus says about who you are. That who he says you are is better than what anyone else could say that you are. And better than what yourself might say that you are. That it's better. And, and I, hope, I hope we can move in that direction. If you're, um, and all of us need to hear this. So I have a very simple and profound answer to the question that we're looking at today, how do we live with sexual integrity? And to drive that home, why we need to take this step back, um, I want to I um, tell you about a conversation that I recently had with someone that's new to Five Oaks. And uh, I asked permission to share this, shared exactly what, uh, although I made a couple little changes, but I shared what I, what I shared with her. So it was after the fifth sermon in this series, uh, uh, or the first one in the second, part two of this series. So it was the one specifically on singleness and intimacy. And we were having a conversation, and like I said, she's new to Five Oaks, and she was explaining how she was loving being at Five Oaks because we actually taught the Bible. And she said in her previous church experience, it was pretty much... I don't want to put words in her mouth, but it was kind of like she, she said it was like there was reference to the Bible, but it didn't have that kind of authority. It was more that you determine for yourself on everything. You determine for yourself. And she said, I, I did that in college. It didn't turn out too well, is the way that she put it. And so she found it refreshing to, to be here at Five Oaks, and she watched online for a while before before she came, watched several of our series. And then, um, and she explained, it's, you know, so it's a new experience, and she, then she added at the end of this conversation, she said, I suppose after listening to today's sermon, I should think about marrying my partner. We've been living together for a while. And um, it was a statement, but I also heard a question in there. <laughs> I got time with the pastor, I'm open. <laughs> You know, and um, I'm learning, and, uh, you know, I suppose I should do this. And uh, so it, it was really a question about living with sexual integrity. Okay, she's learning, she's, she's getting exposed to the Bible and the Bible's perspective, and she's like, am I living, you know, in, with sexual integrity? And I was tempted to say, yes, you should get married, and you can count on me to do the, the, the ceremony. Uh, but I didn't, and it might surprise some of you that I didn't. I said something like this. Um, I said something like, I would want you to do it for the right reasons. Now, there are a lot of good reasons not to say to someone who says, I sh should I marry my partner because we're living together? There's a lot of good reasons why yes might not be the right answer. <laughs> because I don't know her partner. And, uh, you know, I just started thinking, well, 
afterwards, I'd, it's not what I was thinking then, but I you know, started thinking afterwards, I mean, if, if you say yes to something like this and someone you know, goes and, and does it, I mean, I don't know anything about him. I mean, as far as, you know, he could be habitually unfaithful, he could be a cruel narcissist, he could be a sexual predator. I mean, there's all kinds of things that he could be. And uh, so the yes answer wouldn't be a good answer, but that's not what I was thinking about. Um, what was on my mind was, um, was this. Here's a person who is new to the gospel. And if you're brand new to the gospel, you may not know, what does he mean by gospel? We, we'll get back to that with Romans. But here's a person who's new to the gospel and whose heart is open to the gospel. And that was very clear from the conversation. And as far as I can tell, the gospel is a brand new idea for her, or at least somewhat new for her. So if I say yes, that's what Jesus wants, and given the right circumstances, you know, that, uh, you know, he, what, what he would want, I'll just say this right up front, is either that they stop cohabitating or having sexual activity outside of marriage, or that they would get married, all right? So I'll just say that right up front. But she might, if I just say, yeah, that's, that's the right thing to do, she might just do it to keep the rules. She might say, okay, I, you know, now that I've been exposed to this, I, I, I like the direction this is going. I, I want the, the Bible seems to make a lot of sense. So if the Bible says it, I'm going to do it. That is not a bad thing per se. And there are a lot of times in our life when we inside, we're like, eh, and, and, or we may not understand and we obey God because we trust God, right? So it's not a bad thing to just do it because Jesus says to do it. But if she is on a journey to discovering the gospel, to entering the gospel story, I wanted her to know this is not a story that you become a part of by keeping the rules. You know, that if you just keep this rule, you're going to be okay. And, um, and so in this gospel story we're taught that we're made right with God through Jesus, and only through Jesus. And that when we're made right with God through Jesus, we're in a relationship with God, and we're in a relationship with Jesus. Now, within that relationship, and based on God's grace, if Jesus says to do something, we believe it's the right thing to do. And if he says, this is, don't do this, we believe it's not the right thing to do. Uh, our fundamental posture is that Jesus is our wisdom. He is our wisdom. He describes himself that way. He is our wisdom. And so we look to him for wisdom. He knows what's best. And he's not just wisdom, he's king. He brought the kingdom of God. He's our king. He's our leader. And we want to do the right things. And we want to do them for the right reasons. And we also understand that to defy him is to choose badly. Uh, to defy his will is just unwise. It's foolish and, and destructive. Ultimately, it's destructive to our lives. So if I just given 
a yes answer to that question, uh, which certainly came out of what I said about singleness and intimacy. But if I'd just given a yes answer to, the, to that question, it would be just a generic answer that any religious person of any religion could give. But Jesus doesn't call us to join a religion. He calls us to follow him. He wants us in a relationship with him. So we oftentimes talk about this at Five Oaks. If you're new with us, it might be the first time that you hear this, but uh, it's a great illustration of what it is that the gospel story of salvation is about. So if you think of life as uh, a staircase, you know, as you're, and think of that staircase as, you know, you're, you're working your way up the staircase, meaning you're, you're doing good things, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to work your way to heaven, and you get to the top, you know, hopefully, and uh, without too many detours and without going backwards too much, you finally make it to the top, and you knock on heaven's door in a sense, and, or God's door, and God opens the door, and he looks at us and he says, well done. <laughs> you have, uh, your, your good works have you know, outpaced your bad works. You've done enough good, and so I'm going to let you in. That's religion. That's most religions in the world. But Christianity is completely different, and there is no religion that speaks in this way. The door is at the bottom of the staircase, and we, are, we enter through that door by faith and by faith alone. And we are allowed in the door, not because of our own merit, completely 100%, 100%, our merit has nothing to do with it. It 100% has to do with God's merit, what Jesus has done for us. And that's what, what grace is about. That's why Christianity talks a lot about grace. Doesn't, we don't always understand it as Christians. We throw that phrase around a lot, but that's what it means. So when our lives are steeped in the gospel, we should be really careful not to give general, just generic religious answers to questions like that, because it can easily lead to a performance-based faith. I mean, we all struggle with turning something beautiful of grace and turning it into a performance. We all struggle with that. And it is damaging uh, to our relationship with God, and it's damaging to our relationships with each other, and it's damaging to our witness to the world. It's just, it's, it's one of the worst things. I mean, it's what the Reformation was all about. Uh, if we're part of that, that tradition that came out of the Reformation, trying to recapture the gospel, trying to recapture God's grace, it's what it's all about. And so when we just give the general religious answer without putting it in this context, um, it, it becomes a performance. It has the danger of leading someone into a performance-based faith or a kind of a mixture of grace and performance and that sort of thing. So how do we live with sexual integrity? We're going to look at what Jesus says about this. Not, he's not talking about sexual integrity. He's talking about everything. Sexual integrity is a part of it. Uh, but it's a passage in Matthew 11, and uh, so we're going to uh, follow along as one of our five, oaks, five oakers uh, reads the passage to us. Matthew 11:27 through 30. 
All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, how do we live with sexual integrity? I think, you know, by taking this step back, I think this is where it starts, and it always has to start here. It always starts by trusting Jesus. We have to trust Jesus. Uh, look at what it says there in that passage. Um, it, it's halfway through verse 29. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Can you trust a God who describes himself as gentle and humble in heart? A God who is gentle and humble in heart. The one and only person, Jesus is saying in this passage in verse 27, the one and only person with, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth by God the Father. Jesus says, all things, verse 27, all things have been committed to me by the Father. That's why we belong to him, whether we recognize it or not. The only one who can put a claim, he's the only one who can put a claim on our allegiance and call us to follow him as Lord and a Savior. The only one who can say and does say, you belong to me. He describes himself here as gentle and humble in heart. Now, if you read the gospel, you discover that Jesus is more than gentle and humble in heart. All right, he is also fierce in heart for justice. Um, he is also holy in heart. He is righteous in heart. He's not only gentle and humble in heart. So this isn't, you know, if you, this is the only sermon that you hear about Jesus, you could feel when you read the rest of the story like something has been switched here because it's not that he is just humble, gentle and humble in heart. And it's a significant but it's significant that he describes himself that way, and it's more significant than most of us realize. So I just finished reading a pretty celebrated book from this last year um, by Dane Ortland, Pastor Dane Ortland, uh, called Gentle and Lowly. It's on this passage. I want you to hear uh, the significance of him describing himself this way. This is what he writes. He says, in the four gospel accounts given us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it, that totals 89 chapters of biblical text. There's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. This is it, okay? Now, Jesus doesn't have to tell us either. The gospel writers tell us about his heart, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus' own actions tell us about his heart, okay? So it's not the only way you get down to the heart level of Jesus, but it's the only place where he tells us about his own heart. He continues, he says, we learn much in the four Gospels about Christ's teaching and the things that he did and accomplished, but in only one place, perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips, do we hear Jesus himself open up his very heart. And uh, the rest of the quote goes like this, in 
the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and tells, lets us peer down into the core of who He is, we are not told that He is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that He is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that He is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, His surprising claim is that He is gentle and, some translations have lowly, humble in heart. Now, the Bible, we're talking about trusting this Jesus who describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. The Bible stresses the importance of faith. And we believe in, the, in this church that we are made right with God through faith alone in Christ alone. And we believe that faith means believing certain things that God has revealed to us about himself and about Jesus. It's important to believe certain things. But saving faith is also faith that trusts. It's not just believing certain things. The Bible clearly teaches that faith is about entrusting ourselves to the one who is trustworthy. It's actually baked into the Word itself. As you study how faith is used in the Bible, faith doesn't just believe, mean believing facts. It also means in trust. It means trust. And so faith is not only about trust, but it's foremost about trust. Uh, if you go back to like the first major statement of this, all the way back to uh, chapter 15 of Genesis, and God says, um, Abraham believed God. Okay, that doesn't mean believed certain things about God. He trusted God. That's what he did. He trusted God, and therefore God credited it to him as righteousness. Okay, Paul, when he develops the whole idea of the, not develops how he explains it in, in Romans, earlier in Romans, he goes back to that passage. He says, this is how it's always been. It's never been about performance. It's never been about, it's been about trusting God. The gospel story is that when we trust Christ, when we place our faith in him, place our faith in him, entrust ourselves to him, our sins are forgiven from the past, but not just our sins from the past. That moment that we place our faith in Him, our sins all the way into the future are also covered by Him. They're forgiven by Him. That means that when it comes to sexual integrity or any other aspect of integrity, that when we don't get it right, when we're not living whole lives of integrity, we still have a Savior who forgives us. We often lack that integrity, but our hope is in His integrated life. Not our integrated life, His integrated life that He lived here on earth for us. His integrated, righteous, holy life is credited to our account, and our sins are paid for Him by Him on the cross. The penalty of our sins is paid by Him on the cross. He is gentle and humble in heart. So, I mean, this is where I'm taking this step back and I'm just saying, trust Him. Trust Him with your life. Trust Him with your decisions. Trust Him to shape your perspective. Trust Him when He says who you are. Trust Him on that. And trust Him when He tells you how to live sexually as the person that He created you to be. And that's where it all starts. 
So how do we live with sexual integrity? We begins by trusting Jesus. Now, if we trust him, then we follow Jesus. And so right there in uh, verse 28, the opening words of verse 28, come to me, come to me. That's a call to discipleship. That's a call to following Jesus. It's the same call that the disciples on earth experienced. Discipleship is a call that he still puts out to our lives. We're still called to be his disciples. And Jesus was very, very clear about this. Uh, his new family uh, to church has come the last two Saturdays, talking to him last night. And uh, he, he said something like, he said to the person who invited him, one of our members who invited him, he's a neighbor, he said, this isn't a prosperity gospel church, is it? And uh, he told me that. And I said, no, 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 no. But the more I look at our lives and our motivations, the more I see that we have all kinds of prosperity gospels. <laughs> I mean, we, we really do. I mean, if, um, if your children, like, uh, follow Jesus, grow up and follow Jesus, um, or if your children are still young, I don't know how many parents right among us right now have the idea that if I just do everything right, I did everything right, or if I just do everything right, my kids are going to love Jesus. <laughs> That's a prosperity gospel. You understand? It's, it's saying everything is going to work out if I do everything right. And it's not how it works. And God is going to bless me. It's like the prosperity gospel is usually associated with, you know, if I just pray in the right way, God is going to heal me. Or if I just uh, be believe in enough faith, he's going to make me rich. But prosperity gospels work their way. That, that, that idea works into all kinds of things. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, said life is going to be hard. And there's going to be, if you follow me, there's going to be deprivation in your life. Many times it's going to be costly. Here's what he says in Luke, and this is everywhere in the Gospels. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. Remember, that is an instrument of death. <laughs> all right? It's not, uh, uh, you know, something you put on your, you know, key, chain. Um, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, loses their life for me, will save it. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to, it can mean you're going to die, but it's a daily thing, so it's not talking about dying literally every day, but it can lead to death. In many places of the world, it does. So he promises his disciples in other places as well that you're going to suffer persecution, and he tells him, um, you're going to be rejected, sometimes by your own family, because you follow me. And there's going to be hardship and deprivation because of following me. And sometimes that hardship is going to be because you have lived sacrificially for me, as I've called you to live. And there's going to be, I'm not going to have everything that I want, and sometimes I'm not going to have some of the things that I really consider to be necessities because I've followed you. Jesus' call is so different from what we experience every day in our culture. Um, you might remember this from week one of the series. We talked about the world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. In fact, the Bible has so much to say about how the heart is so easily deceived. And uh, so anybody who's looking, the, kind of, the locus of what my identity is, is what I feel like or what my heart is saying to me, is, um, is just not paying attention to what the Bible says. They're probably not really paying very much attention to their own heart. Uh, because their heart is telling them so many contradictory things. Like, so how do you choose which one of those heart things? 
He says, love yourself. Jesus says, the world says, love yourself. Jesus says, love the Lord your God and your neighbor. Discover yourself. Jesus says, no, deny yourself. And there's truth in all of these because you do discover yourself, Jesus says, when you deny yourself. You discover the self that God has created. The world, believe in yourself. Jesus says, believe in me. Um, and so there's this contrast between what Jesus says and what our world says. So there's a cost, right? There's a cost. And Jesus said there's a cost. But there's also the cost of not following him. And Jesus talks about that all the time as well. One of the best statements of the cost of non-discipleship, I think, was made by um, Dallas Willard in a book that he wrote. He's a philosopher, late Dallas Willard, um, Christian philosopher. And he wrote, he said, non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good, Hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. Powerful, powerful statement. So I want to get really specific here for a moment. You have a choice. You have a choice. You can trust what your self is telling you, and you can doubt Jesus. You can do that. Or you can trust what Jesus is telling you, and doubt what yourself is telling you. And if you trust Jesus, follow him. Follow him in everything, including the arena of sex and sexuality. So how do you live with sexual integrity? It all begins with trusting Jesus and following him. He is gentle and humble in heart. It means trusting him with your life and your decisions, trusting him to shape your perspective, trusting him when he says who you are. And then um, after following Jesus, learn Jesus. It's a little weird phrasing, but I'll explain that in a moment. So Jesus says in, uh, again, um, verse 29, the very opening, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Uh, so, I say learn Jesus because there's a place in Ephesians where the Apostle Paul, if you read it in the original language, says, we learned, he says, remember how you learned Christ. Uh, in English, it doesn't quite, you know, it's missing something. It's missing, um, what's it missing? <laughs> it's missing something grammatically. But it, the idea is clear, and you learn Jesus, and um, you learn Christ. So, you follow Jesus by becoming his disciple, and actually baked into the word disciple is the whole idea of becoming his student, becoming his apprentice. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it meant in the first century. You became a disciple of a rabbi. You became a disciple of a philosopher. Jesus says, no, be my disciple. You learn from him. And you not only learn his commands, 
you learn his way of life. It's really important. Not just his commands. What does he say to do? I'm going to look through the Bible and see what he says to do, and I'm going to go do it. You look at his way of life. He is the only human being, and he was truly human, completely human, the only human being that has lived the image of God that he was created to be. He's the only human being. So we look at his way of life. Next week when we start this Roman series in this first couple of verses, we're going to go in depth, uh, much greater depth than today. On, in a sense, next week's sermon is an extension of this week's sermon because we're going to talk about how do you learn Jesus because you say, I followed him, I trust him, and I still mess up all the time. And first thing is, yes, and you will continue to mess up all the time. But you can grow, and, and that is what we're going to be talking about, how we can grow and, and, and hopefully see in our lives that we are reflecting more and more the image of Christ in our lives. But let me just say this. If you trust Jesus and you follow him, don't examine his words just to learn who you are, what your identity is, and what you should do. You should do that. You should examine his words for those things, but also look at his habits and look at his practices. Look at his habits and look at his practices. You can trust Jesus. He is trustworthy. You can trust Jesus. He is gentle and humble in heart. And if we could unpack, if we had the time to unpack those two terms that he uses there, uh, you can read the book, it's really good, <laughs> uh, uh, by Dane Ortland. But if we could just unpack it, Jesus that describes himself as gentle and humble heart is everything you most deeply, you could have ever imagined or hoped God would be. Not... not not the superficial hope that, you know, I want God to be a God that just does everything that I want. <laughs> but really deep down inside when you think about it, this is everything. He is everything you could possibly want him to be. And if you decide that you indeed can trust him with your life, then offer your life to him. Offer your life to him. Ask him to take your sins and to put them on the cross and trust yourself your very self to him as your king and as your leader. And you can do it right now if you've never done that. You can do that right now. There is, there is a moment, sometimes we can mark it, sometimes we, we just don't know when it happened. But there's always a moment in our lives where we cross from death to life, where we cross from darkness to light, where we cross from living our own lives to being filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a moment that all that happens at that same moment. We go from being lost to being found. And you can, if, you're, if you've never done that, you can, that moment can happen today for you. And when you do, you can experience, in the words of Dallas Willard, a life penetrated by love, hopefulness in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to withstand the forces of evil. You will experience forgiveness, um, release from shame, or at least you'll be on the road to experiencing your own emotional release from shame. You will know that who you are because you'll know whose you are, and you'll start to really learn how to live when you do that. Follow Jesus and trust your life to him. He is trustworthy. Put your faith in him alone today.
Every week, we spend time beginning our response to God's Word, listening, right here together. And we always start it, almost always start it, with communion. And um, so, get your communion packet ready. Uh, I just want to explain something. Uh, those of you who've been around here for a while, you've heard me say this more than once. Those of us on the preaching team, there's a little test that we have of whether we're preaching the gospel and preaching the word well. And that is, can our sermon end with communion? <laughs> or is that like, communion is like, no, that, you know, communion is about everything that Jesus did for us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Have we been preaching a sermon that's about all that we need to do in order to get right with God? In order to seem like, yeah, God's going to bless me because of what, what I've done. So let's remember that right now. That begins our response. His body was broken in our place. And his blood was shed in our place so that we can experience a relationship with him. And we can experience life. And we can experience forgiveness. Let's eat and drink. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done, for your amazing grace. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has never taken that step of following you. Maybe they've depended on their church experience, their tradition, their family tradition. Maybe even they're right now depending on their parents' faith. Um, or their good works or their performance, their religiosity. But they've never really trusted you. And I pray that they would today. Draw them near. I pray that they'll hear your call. Come, come to me. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would help us to live more and more into your grace, in that story of grace. The beautiful vision of when things will be made completely uh, right, the renewal of all things that someday is coming, but that we would live in that reality of what's coming more and more now. And help us to be your witnesses, not to, um, not to a morality or not even to your morality, but to, to what you offer in the gospel that gets us going in a direction that is more pleasing to you or can be more pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.